the Sizo Mbofu Welsh Experience Podcast. Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm extremely excited to be joined by a guest who needs no introduction. Professor Stephen Chan is distinguished not only by being a foremost and a leading scholar on African politics, having published and contributed to over 35 books, worked as a professor and a dean at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, but also been a practitioner of diplomacy, having served the Commonwealth Secretariat and had deep links with Southern African and many African liberation organizations. He combines a deep knowledge of practice on the African continent with a wide and vast scholarly background. And there's no one better to speak about current Southern African politics than Professor Chan. So Professor Chan, thank you so much for joining us on SMWX. I've been a long time admirer of your work and it's a wonderful moment to have you on the channel. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. I was struck once watching a documentary on the politics of Southern Africa when a State Department official said that Southern Africa to the United States and indeed the rest of the world was the Persian Gulf of non-oil resources. What, what do you think is the geopolitical importance of Southern Africa? And do you think that Southern African states appreciate their importance or maybe lack of importance on the on the global stage? I think the State Department is here using doctrine which has not been revised since the Cold War. It's continued onwards and this really dates from the time when the sea lanes around the Cape of Good Hope were of extreme importance. And there was even talk in those days of NATO expanding its remit and basically incorporating what was loosely then called a SATO, a Southern Atlantic Treaty Organization, involving South Africa and Argentina. And that would have been very, very much to preempt any kind of Soviet naval interception of ships using that particular sea lane. Now, in those days, they were primarily concerned about oil. Rare minerals like lithium, for instance, hadn't really been appreciated or even discovered at that point in time. Now that these things assume a major importance, rare metals, lithium for batteries for electric cars and things of that nature, you've got a new game in town, which is really to do with the energy resources of the future, as connected not only to transport, but to AI. You know, in other words, the entire future of the world, not just Southern Africa, is electronically based, and rare materials, the rare metals, the lithium that comes out of Southern Africa, is of absolute key importance. So they've had no difficulty in resurrecting a Cold War doctrine. I wouldn't use such colorful language. The Persian Gulf is really quite different in terms of its dynamics than here. But basically, you've had an easy, as we carryover from the doctrine of those days to the doctrine which is prevalent now. Yeah, absolutely. There's There's often this talk in Southern Africa that, you know, if we got our political house in order, this could be, we have the basis for a next 
global economic superpower. To what extent do you think that Southern Africa has the capability to become a truly um, economic leader in the world if we can rid ourselves of the the political foibles of uh, the last few decades, at least, but I suppose they, they go back longer. Well, yes, some several decades, in fact. Uh, these foibles existed during apartheid days as well. Some of those have carried over. Oh. But if you're talking about Southern Africa, you really do have to mean Southern Africa. South Africa alone can't be a global superpower. If Sadek was able to get his act together, and punch above its weight as a unity, as a union. Yes, you could actually rival organizations like the European Union, and that would make it into a very formidable force in world politics, but you've got a real problem here. To do a superpower politics, of course, but one of the key linchpins in a Southern African configuration is what to do about Zimbabwe. And that basically is a game wrecker at this moment in time, because there's no way they could play a coherent part in any kind of Southern Africa push for global influence, not only because of their economic meltdown, but because of their political isolation. So getting Southern Africa's act together involves an awful lot of house cleaning and house maintenance. We're a long way off that. And I think added to this, and this refers back to your first question, you know, does Southern Africa appreciate what's going on right now with doctrine coming out of Washington, et cetera, et cetera? Well, no, it doesn't. And I can't really think of too many foreign ministers in the entire Sardic region who fully understands the dynamics of diplomacy and politics outside of Africa. And even outside of Southern Africa, in other words, South Africa, for instance, is not punching above its weight in the corridors of the African Union. So even in continental politics, it's lagging behind. And certainly in global politics, it's made so many mistakes recently that if South Africa can't lead the way forward in engaging with the world, no one else is going to do that. But uh, we were we were on the conversation about Southern Africa and its, its uh, capacity to understand where it fits in, in wider global dynamics. That's right. And I was making the point that it's got to understand its own region a lot better. Mm. It's got to understand Africa a lot better. Mm. When I go to Ethiopia, when I go to Addis, and I intersect myself with the African Union, for instance, notwithstanding the brief tenure of Madame Blahimi uh, uh, Zuma, mm. she left such a bad imprint that actually no one has a higher opinion of what South Africa could contribute to the African Union. People like Thabo Mbeki used to talk about an African Renaissance. And although that's a very, very attractive idea, of course, we would all support that in principle. No one thinks that anyone in South Africa has actually got the intellectual throwaway or the diplomatic capacity to start engendering unity even on a cultural basis, let alone take the lead in economic and political bases. Absolutely. And you're someone who who appreciates the dip, uh, diplomatic world in all its depth. Let's let's just dream for a minute. What what would what would a coherent diplomatic strategy to position Southern Africa appropriately for 
the future actually look like? And are there any examples that we, we may be able to draw from from regions or states that have actually been able to bring together a coherent strategy that rolls out over a long period? A coherent diplomatic strategy would mean a number of preconditions in the first instance. And if you're talking about SADC as a whole, but even if you're just talking about South Africa alone, the training of your diplomats and particularly your diplomatic intelligence needs to be raised at a very, very high level. I mean, there have been a number of, let us say, lackluster South African ambassadors or high commissioners in London, for instance. We had a very, very good one uh, who was then caught out by COVID and couldn't really act as an ambassador would normally act. Uh, but really, it's been underrepresented in London and the ambassadors of many of the other SADC nations also haven't come up to scratch. Now, you've got a number of organizations in London, for instance, like the Commonwealth Secretariat, where there's a lot of opportunity for nations to punch above their weight in concert with others. Mm. And I think there are missed opportunities, which are even greater missed opportunities in places like Rome, Paris, New York, uh, and Washington where if there was a consensus and a coordinated push among Southern African ambassadors accredited to DC, but also to the World Bank and the IMF, you could actually start having the beginnings of some kind of push, which was on African terms to do with international debt crises. Now, you take the case of Zambia, which is just now slowly emerging from its huge debt crisis, and I'll be in Zambia next week. And I've been quite close to some of these negotiations. Now, the big question I keep asking is, why did Zambia have to do all of that by itself? Hmm. All the negotiations were conducted by Zambia. They had to take a year to do this. Where was the help? Where was the assistance from the other parts of Southern Africa? So you've got a real problem there of coming up to scratch but also a real problem of achieving cooperative operational solidarity. Sorry, you were just on the negotiations conducted by Zambia and why they had to do it by themselves. That's right. Why did they have to do it all by themselves? You know, no one came to their aid. So if you're going to have a coherent regional organization that in operational terms, as well as in terms of principle, can help one another, and bring solidarity in after that unity of approach, unity of economic diplomacy mm. in the future, then the big question I kept asking was, where is the assistance? Where is the help? Where is the operational practical solidarity? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is some, some optimistic talk maybe among a younger generation of scholars and thinkers that we're entering the end or maybe the beginning of the end of a particular era in Southern African politics where liberation movements have dominated the politics of various Southern African countries. To what extent do you think that that view is, is correct? Or to what extent do you think that uh, liberation movements have a way of reinventing themselves and defying political gravity and may do so for another generation? 
but a coffee for another generation, because if you're a liberation movement, the members who are leading it had to have participated in liberation. And in Zimbabwe now, for instance, you're really on to the last part of the generation that actually fought or tried to fight. Anyone else calling themselves a liberation generation after that are pretenders. You know, they did not fight. They were too young to fight. It's as simple as that. In South Africa, of course, because it achieved majority rule at a later stage than other countries, uh, there are many who want to call themselves members of the liberation generation. But I think it's very, very important to realize there's a qualitative difference. In Zimbabwe, there was a war. So if you fought, you fought, okay? In South Africa, the liberation movement was not a battlefield liberation. There was violence, of course, but it basically was a violence achieved by sabotage, by threat, by posture to a large extent. Now, to what extent can those credentials hold up in the face of economic meltdown, of infrastructural meltdown? Oh, we fought for you, put up with this for now. But I really have to say this, and it's going to make me very unpopular. Welcome to the club, by the way. Yes, right. You know, we fought for you. Actually, no, you didn't. You basically put yourself in a position where you could have, but, you know, it never came push to shove to a violent confrontation of a militarized sort. So, for instance, when I was living in Lusaka in the 1980s, I was part of the safe house network for the families of ANC members. So when the South African commandos came over the border on kill missions, uh, we looked after the children of ANC cadres. But then the question always was, it was South African commandos coming across the border. There were no ANC commandos going across the border into South Africa. So the whole idea of a liberation generation has got to be taken with at least a grain of difference between how it was done in different countries. Slightly different again in Namibia. Very different, of course, in Mozambique and, of course, in Angola, where there were pitched conventional battles involving tank warfare, aerial warfare, and things of that nature. So liberation generations, even if they fought or even if they did not fight, just by the whole idea of you can't live forever, we're seeing the end of the liberation generation. Mm. So what South Africa has really got to do is not trade on the past. It's actually got to put forward not only a vision and a planning structure, but a methodology for that planning structure into the future. It's the future mm. that matters. It's the born freeze that matter. It's the young people getting themselves university educated today and want to enter an economy, workplace, that intersects with the modern world, the modern global world, which of course is changing. You've not only got the West now, you've got China, you've got the Middle East. Uh, it's a competitive globalization now, in which South Africa and Southern Africa could be, as we discussed earlier, a player. But getting to that point is going to be very difficult. Yes, um, competitive globalization and and the future is, is so, so important and, and that that sense in which we, we in South Africa and in many parts of Southern Africa try to play the present through the past is becoming less and less persuasive and let alone plausible. 
could could we could we look at South Africa specifically and and just your impressions of South African foreign policy in the Ramaphosa era? Have you noticed any particular changes in its direction? And what's your assessment of the Ramaphosa era as far as foreign policy is concerned? Well, I must say I've been very critical in public of your foreign minister, Madame Pandor. She may have been a very good minister in other portfolios. It seems to me she really doesn't understand the outside world, the European world, the Russian world, and the Eastern European world at all. The entire botch, and it was a botch job of South African attempted policy towards Ukraine and Russia was just incredibly naive. And everyone around the world just basically said, what the hell is going on here? Why can't these people actually appreciate what's going on? Because naivety after naivety was what was coming out of Pretoria and the foreign ministry. Wow. Now, either no one is briefing the foreign minister or you don't have people who can brief the foreign minister. So people are now, for instance, learning Chinese. How many people in the foreign ministry can speak Russian? How many people in the foreign ministry can understand Arabic and Turkish? Because it's going to be Saudi Arabia and Turkey making the next big pushes towards Africa. When I go to Istanbul, I'm just asked all the time, can you review our strategy that we're developing now towards Africa? Mm. What about the Qataris as the intermediate force in Middle Eastern and Western politics that played a huge role for a small nation? And in some ways, is almost a model for how a small nation can conduct diplomacy. It be something very, very simple. There's something called the Doha Forum, which is a once a year diplomatic gigantic conference. Everybody who's anybody in the international diplomatic world is invited. It's like the Davos of diplomacy. Mm. And there've been other attempts to do things like that. I've spoken in India, for instance, at the leadership summit organized by the Hindustan Times. Again, an attempt to emulate Davos. In Canada, they have the Halifax Security Conference where the generals of the Western world get together. Why can't there be that kind of gathering in a specific sector? But I'll use the Doha Forum in Dakar as a major example. Make it a place where everyone who has any kind of importance at all in the international diplomatic world, place where they want to come. Mm. You know, where the real thing is, of course, not the set speeches uh, that people deliver to the conference, so that they've got a chance to meet behind the scenes. You've got no idea how much American and Iranian diplomacy was done behind the scenes mm. at the Doha Forum when they weren't speaking to each other, were they? But I know the architect of the hotel where we were stationed, and I know where all of the secret passages were. And so okay. they were meeting all right. And a lot of good, a lot of good came out of that kind of informal contact. Similarly, at the Istanbul Security Conferences, where there was that scandal of the Saudi assassination of the journalist Khashoggi. Hmm. Again, the Turks, who were very offended by this because it took place on their soil, basically used it as a lobbying meeting. And anybody whom they thought had any kind of strategic entry point in their home countries uh, was given the opportunity, do you want to listen to the assassination tapes? You know, we can demonstrate 
it really happened, and it really happened in a terrible fashion. That had a huge influence for a while in terms of Western perceptions of how to interact with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Mm. He's taken a good two or three years to come out of that and to repaint himself in different colors. So these conferences would be a start in projecting South African seriousness and mm. organizational ability to the outside world. It's not just a BRICS summit. It's something which has to be much wider than that, involving not just presidents, but also all the other players, the as it were, international civil society of diplomacy, as well as players like foreign ministers, ambassadors, some academics, you know, military people who work on foreign portfolios, some imagination going into the mix. But these things are very, very difficult to organize, of course, and to coordinate. So we've been having problems today uh, with our electronic link-ups, for instance. You have that happen once in an international televised conference and you're deadbeat. You know? mm. So you've got mm. to get infrastructural act together. You've got to have transport that works with the IPs going from the airport to the hotel. You can't have a taxi war going on in Cape Town when this kind of thing is being hosted. <laughs> and at the same time, if you are having a taxi war, you can't send the army in to clear away the taxi operators. It just leaves a trail of carnage for the mm. diplomats to look at as they try to drive in, you know, because the salt flats are, of course, very, very close to the airport. Just things like basic signage as you get out of Cape Town Airport. I took exactly the wrong turning once as that poor uh, British doctor who got himself totaled uh, the other day in the taxi war. It's so easy to do because your signage, something as basic as that, is so confusing. So, you know, getting stuff together. You can't have electricity blackouts when you're hosting conferences like that. You can't have a big announcement saying, oh, there'll be a momentary blackout as we switch into the generators. You know, it's got to be continuous. It's got to be seamless. Mm -hmm. So South Africa needs to put on a seamless show to the world. Start projecting itself as a serious player where everything works. So if everyone wants to cooperate with you, they have the assurance that things will work. It's not just a national problem, all of these infrastructural blackouts, breakdowns, etc. It becomes as well a huge diplomatic problem. And you mentioned the BRICS summit there, and that has really come to dominate at least the government's attempt to project its successes on the international stage. To what extent do you think that BRICS represents a real opportunity for a country like South Africa to punch above its weight, um, in, in your words? Or do you think that maybe this is all a bit premature and that the BRICS nations may well um, arise, or at least some of them, to... Uh, they could arise, but don't forget when BRICS was formed, the S stood for South Africa, and I was very close to those discussions. South Africa was included as a courtesy simply because the other nations realized they needed to have an African as a participant in all of this. But if you look at who puts the money and the infrastructure into BRICS, it's China and India. If you're going to be a big player within the BRICS framework, you've actually got to put stuff in, not just be in a position of hoping to take stuff out, which is what all of the new Moala join nations, uh, like Zimbabwe, you know, just want to have another source of liquidity. 
and be a big player in BRICS, you have to be an equal participant in putting stuff in. So South Africa is not ready for that as yet. The Chinese certainly are. The Indians don't want to be left behind too far uh, to the Chinese. So you have to be a big player like that. You look at other members, Russia, Brazil, that kind of player. South Africa is not yet of that kind of stature. So the whole BRICS summit was meant to be some kind of step towards being able to at least present the possibility of that kind of stature. But the entire fiasco about whether Putin would come or not, uh, as I said, met with all kinds of naive responses from the foreign ministry in South Africa. Uh, that basically, any good that South Africa might have gained from that summit was clouded immediately by just how badly that issue was handled. What did you think was, was naive about the South African response to, to the, the Putin situation? And, and what kind of naiveties do you think it, it continues to show on the international stage? Basically, it should have been more decisive. Instead of just giving the impression it didn't know what to do, the thing to mm -hmm. do would be immediately to say, look, we want this thing to go ahead. It's a certain condition here which has been imposed by the international community, by the International Criminal Court. And right at the very beginning, the statement should have been said, this summit is going to be held online for everybody in its entirety. So you take a decisive action like that, which is meaningful, which doesn't humiliate anybody. You don't want to humiliate someone like Mr. Putin, for instance. Sure, uh, sure. But at the same time, it means that the summit goes on. You get the international community off your back. You don't have to arrest somebody who's not there. And you're able to project a sense of an aura of responsibility. Okay, you appreciate there's controversy around Ukraine. I would put it more strongly than that, but I know that there are different views, but that you appreciate the international community has made a response which needs to be recognized, if not fully honored. I would rather it was fully honored, but it has to be recognized. You can't fly in the face of this kind of international opinion, particularly when the accusations are of war crimes, and particularly when and South Africa of all people, Southern Africa of all parts of the world should know this. What you have here is an attempt to recolonize somebody that was formerly colonized, got independence. It's made its own way you know, for quite a number of decades now. It's developed its own sense of self, a very proud and problematic sense of self. You know, what if someone tried to recolonize South Africa? What if Britain tried to recolonize Zimbabwe? Oh, it was ours once. You know, that doesn't go down very well, does it? So that's what the Russians are trying to do. And that should be recognized. The Liberation Party, we're going to talk about the Liberation Party, should mm. recognize the need not to be recolonized. It's as simple as that. You know, that, that's interesting. And I think what, what re really resonates with me in terms of your perspective, and I think as you rightly identify, there are different views on on the on the extent to which we should support Ukraine with a full-throated um, approach or not, but I think even with the countries that I've seen that have taken a similar stance to South Africa um, of of wanting to you know play or appear um, as neutral or, or whatever they they call it. 
there are actually different levels of sophistication within that position where we've seen countries come out and actually condemn the violation of the UN Charter unequivocally, but then still say that, you know, in the conflict, we're not going to, you know, express an opinion so, you know, so clearly. Whereas South Africa has, has been mealy-mouthed on everything, and that makes us look weak because it looks like we don't have a position on, on anything. So I, I'm, I'm not, and you, you may well disagree, I, I'm not so, so critical of a stance of, uh, or at least not taking a strong stance either way. But there are ways of doing that with sophistication that I don't think we've actually managed to do. No, you haven't. And you tried to lead forward an African peace plan. It wasn't a plan at all. It was a series of bullet points about desirable outcomes, but no roadmap as to how to get there. Of which I think was the parties should talk to each other or something like that. Well, you take it one step further. You invite, in very, very public terms, both President Putin and President Zelensky to a private meeting in Pretoria, hosted lavishly by President Ramaphosa, they're both absolutely assured of their integrity as people, they're safe. The International Criminal Court would allow that to happen if the aim was to have face-to-face peace talks hmm. between the two. Yeah. yeah. But there was never any kind of bold suggestion like that. It was a mealy-mouthed African peace plan, just basically was a repetition of the Chinese peace plan. And what the Chinese are doing behind the scenes is what is very, very important. Under this Ramaphosa African peace plan, nothing is happening behind the scenes. So the trick would have been to take this thing forward and just say, look, let's do this. Come, come to Pretoria. Or come to some kind of neutral venue, you know, uh, persuade the Mauritians to post it in the middle of the Indian Ocean or something mm. like that. Mauritius mm. would probably be very, very happy to cooperate if the Prime Minister of Mauritius was joint host with President Ramaphosa. They're very, very straightforward, diplomatic, bold solutions. They're bold, but they're quite straightforward. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to conceive of these kinds of possible bold ways forward. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And just to... You know, it was interesting to notice our, our being snubbed at the G7 summit in, in Hiroshima. I mean, President Ramaphosa ended up having some representation via the AU and, and, and that route. But it did signal an interesting moment in which, uh, for all our talk of, you know, being part of BRICS and being at, at the center of global geopolitics, it, it, it appeared as though that was the first time when our influence uh, seem to be waning, at least in that forum. Yeah, this is true. But then you've just got to ask yourself the $50,000 question. If you're going to be part of a very, very important meeting of that sort, you know, top players, the big question is, what do you bring to the table? And if you're bringing equivocal, mealy-mouthed, half-formed policies to the table, no one wants you there. You know, You don't have to go around the world saying, I want my rights to be there as a passenger. If you're a passenger, don't go there. If you're able to offer something for the people in the driver's seat, you know, that's what you should be doing. And South Africa really 
can't do that right now. It's very embarrassing. You know, it's very well known. I was a very great fan of South Africa, particularly at the moment of liberation. But having the wherewithal to go forward means doing an awful lot of soul searching now, an awful lot of research, an awful lot of rethinking. And as we were discussing earlier, going beyond the rhetoric of the liberation generation, what lies in the future? And in terms of diplomacy, what are the diplomatic configurations of the future? Can we turn our attention to Zimbabwe, uh, Prof, because we've an election coming up as we speak in a, in a few weeks. What are your hopes, having observed many elections, maybe even pioneered the idea of election observation on the continent? Uh, what are your hopes for, for a free and, and a fair election in 2020? It's relatively peaceful, and I do mean relatively. You know, by that, I mean not too many people get killed. That appears possible that the violence will become extreme. Credible? Well, we'll have to wait until the actual counting to see whether or not it's credible. It's not been fair because of all the restrictions put upon the opposition to campaign properly. But peaceful and credible, as I said, you can probably look forward to some kind of verdict that was relatively peaceful. Credible remains to be seen. Mm. And what we're afraid of is very, very much violence as the result is announced. In other words, the key date is not 2023, it's not 23 August, yeah. you know, which is the day of polling. It's 28 August when the results are officially announced. Mm-hmm. Depending which way they go, more hell breaks loose then. You know, it's going to be a very, very difficult uh, you know, time to manage things mm-hmm. that when For the first time, what you've got are some serious people involved in the observer groups. There's some really good expert people in the African Union group for a change. The Carter Center is bringing uh, Professor Yeager, who was the chair of the Nigerian Electoral Commission, had the best Nigerian election ever run. He made that a huge success in a very problematic country. And he becomes the benchmark that the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission has got to match itself to. So that's the Carter Centre heavyweight. And what you've got is the whole idea that, okay, the country's not going to be flooded by observers, but there'll be enough at high level to make an informed judgment. Now, what they're already seeing is disturbing. The use of courts to nullify candidatures, and even though Chamisa got his 12 Bulawayo MPs back on the list, uh, Monzora lost 87 candidates, um, you know, on a technicality. Whereas the courts and the Electoral Commission should see it as their duty to try to facilitate democracy. And that certainly was not the case. They were used and were happy to be used as a means to stymie, restrict democracy. What's an election without candidates? The whole thing is so farcical, it's ridiculous. So we're looking at something which is going to be a straight fight now between uh, Menengagwa and the ZANU-PF on the one hand, and Chamisa and the CCC on the other hand. If it were totally free and fair, then all the opinion polls suggest that Chamisa could take it. Okay, But we've already said it's not going to be peaceful. It's not going to be free and fair in any acceptable sense. 
will the distortions of voting figures, which is whatever I was afraid of, be, as it were, kept within bounds, so it's at least relatively credible? Now, there's a lot of pessimism about this election. People just say, oh, why are you even interested? This could be same old, same old Zalio PF by hook or by crook, or both will win the elections again. And it's true to say that the CCC campaign has not been a great campaign, that have very little budget, very little organizational capacity to throw the campaign. It's true to say that Zalio PF is formidably organized. We keep forgetting that. They've got a tight machine, very disciplined machine, an election machine, which no opposition party can match. They just don't have the funds to do that. So what you see is a very valiant underdog fight, which all the same seems to be registering in the rural areas where people have been very deprived, even more in the visible deprivation in the cities. And of course, because the economy is tanked pretty comprehensively uh, in a way which makes it, as it were, a world leader in how an economy can go under. Zimbabwe is first in the world at what? You know, in terms of a tanking economy. This is felt by people at everyday level. So whether or not they would like ideologically one party above another, economically, people are desperate. And this is the opposition's best card. Look, we've actually got a plan to take us forward from this terrible position. Now, the plans right now are a bit simplistic, but at the same time, they'll resonate. You know, we're going to re-dollarize again in the first 100 days. It worked last time, and it probably would work again this time, because instantly your currency has substance and value, which you can use to predict your future budgeting, for instance. Even the smallest household would benefit from that, and of course, there'll be national benefit of not having this volatility in the national income. So people would be attracted to that kind of solution. The other big problems of Zimbabwe have developed over such a long period of time that simple solutions won't work. You took this long to get into this mess. It's going to take a few years to get out of the mess. And the debt problems, external debt problems, are much greater in Zimbabwe than they were in Zambia. In Zambia, at least we knew the size of the debt owed to the Chinese. In Zimbabwe, we know the size of the debt owed to everybody else but the Chinese. So you've got all kinds of elephants in the room which will haunt a new government. What do I think will be the outcome? Well, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I'm going to be there uh, for the elections again. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's going to be very tight. One way or another, if the government tries not to be too visibly unfair, not to cheat too visibly because of the high caliber of senior observers, and so massaging of the figures is kept at a relative minimum, whoever wins by no more than 2%. Uh, so it's going to be tight all the way down the line. Chamisa, if he wants to win convincingly in a way that is able to resist manipulation of figures, is going to have to come up with a 10% lead the day before the election. That's hard to achieve. Now, Pichalema in Zambia did it. He had 10%. That couldn't be a massage down. You know, it just would defy, as it were, mathematical arts. That's what Chamisa has got to bring to the table. If he is much less than that, then the algorithms can be, let's say, adjusted. 
the good thing again is that for a change and after a lot of nagging, some observer groups will be bringing geeks with high-powered computers. In other words, you can interrogate how these algorithms work now. It's not, again, total rocket science anymore. So you can't make your manipulation too naked. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be done carefully in the sense that what you're manipulating has got to match, as it were, known movements from previous electoral history on the ground. But if you've got five days from the 23rd polling day to the 28th results day, that's actually enough time to do that. So it's going to be very interesting. So a lot of my time is going to be looking over the shoulder of people with big computers. <laughs> well, uh, it's certainly going to be a fascinating period for this part of the world. And we'll certainly be watching eagerly to see how events unfold, also from the South African perspective. Professor Chan, we've, we've taxed your time sufficiently. Let me end, let me end with this question. And um, we hope one day we'll be able to, to get you back, um, South African digital infrastructure permitting. Um, it's been interesting to watch the Nangagwa and Ramaphosa eras unfold in parallel in some ways where we've had these massive promises of something new, while at the same time we've seen these massive continuities persist. And it's probably a bit early to assess, but how, how would you assess the, the Ramaphosa and Nangagwa um, years, and how do you think history will, will look back on them? I think that basically uh, people are already nostalgic for Mugabe. Uh, they don't think that Benigagwa is of the same caliber. We'll have to wait and see if he achieves a second term, what he does with it. And it's not been a very, very sort of inspiring first term. He had a lot of international goodwill in the wake of the coup that overthrew Mugabe. And that's basically been squandered. As for Ramaphosa, well, he basically basks in the sunlight by comparison to Zuma. Uh, President Zuma really does have to go down as a disaster area in South African history. If Zuma had gotten his presidency right, he wouldn't be in this problem right now that you're facing. But it went disastrously wrong. All the same, Ramaphosa very, very clearly can't reinvent an ANC, so it's a technocratic party, and that's what he needs. So to that extent, young Julius Malema is right. You know, everyone needs to go back to university. He himself is doing that, of course. And in fact, I think he's just started his PhD. But you actually can't. You're not a supervisor, are you? No, 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 no. But the supervisor did sort of uh, um, drop the hint to me that this man was starting type of thing. I better not reveal any confidences here, but... Indeed, but I know you've supervised some important Southern African figures. A whole middle cadre in a provincial cadre, municipal cadre of administrators who don't know what they're doing. And that's just disastrous. And this also includes administrators who are meant to be auditors. So people can get away with murder. And not only auditors, but building standards engineers. I mean, I worked my way through university. I know what a good construction job, a good plaster job, a good paint job looks like. I spend a lot of time in townships in South Africa looking at the new housing units that are meant to be part of the promise of majority rule. And I just say, okay, that plaster is going to fall off in exactly three years' time. It's a botched job. Uh, It's just awful, just 
how a lack of standards of basic service provision prevails. It's not checked. No one's auditing it. No one knows how to audit it. You're still using an awful lot of Africana public administration methodologies, which are not suited for mass service delivery. So your whole education system suffers because of the use of those methodologies. Uh, so getting into the 21st century, 22nd century, whichever century we're meant to be aiming for, you know, we're not really started yet to come out of the old days. So Ramaphosa is an educated man. He's a successful man. He should have done better, quite frankly. Professor Chan, we really appreciate your time on SMWX. Thank you for all your important scholarly and practical diplomatic work in our part of the world. And we hope one day to invite you back. Look forward to that. Take care. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Aye, aye. The Seaswim Awful Welsh Experience Podcast. Aye, 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 aye.